and look how many of these antibodies recognize SARS-2 and the normal cold antibodies. And that's another percentage that shows you how immune we are. So we can probably go to 70, 80% of the people are most likely immune. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. A truly fascinating discussion today because I've managed to get hold of Dr. Beda Stadler, uh, who's a professor emeritus of immunology at the University of Bern in Switzerland. So amazing to meet you, uh, Beda, and great to see you here. Good to see you, Ivor, yes. And maybe I might start because this viral issue is so fraught uh, and controversial. Uh, maybe briefly, if you first went through your kind of credentials uh, to establish, you know, that this discussion is going to be uh, top notch. Uh, look, I'm uh, out of research since 2014. I'm in pension, but I have I had 30 years of research in the field of allergology autoimmunity. I was involved in making, uh, at the very beginning, monoclonal antibodies. I was, for example, one of the first one who made a monoclonal against interleukin-2 with cytokine, which now plays a role. And then later on, we switched to making artificial antibodies, star pins, things like that. Very interesting things, which basically are um, uh, a picture of a small evolution in the test tube. So all my life, I worked on B cells and antibodies, more or less. And then I was, uh, when after my time in, in America as a postdoc at the NIH, uh, where I, at that time, uh, HIV was just found, was new, and all these guys were fighting together. Who, who is the actual the <laughs> guy who found it? So Gallo and Tony Fauci had some little fights, you know, but finally Gallo won, and Fauci, later on, he became the clinical master of this disease. And uh, since then, uh, everybody knows him in, in, in America, but also in the scientific field. And he is... Uh, and I later on still had contacts because he is the director of the Institute of Allergy there, like I was the, the director of the Institute of Immunology and Allergy at the University of Bern. So, of course, one would see each other at congresses and so. So, uh, immunology was, was a, a nice... Uh, a nice uh, experience during my life, and I, and I like to look back. I'm no more reading all the detailed papers. I, I'm trying to enjoy, enjoy my pension now. Very good and well-deserved, I'm sure. Well, Fauci is a topic that we could spend the whole podcast on, so we'll probably, we'll probably move on from him promptly. But uh, the other day I saw an interview with yourself and you started with a story, an illustrative story, and maybe you could give that one again about an island scenario. You know, for immunologists, it's um, kind of a basic uh, story that everyone has to know, namely, how was actually measles detected and described first? And, uh, and that started with a Dane who visited the Faroe Islands. A carpenter who left that ship 
went uh, on the island, and on the island there were about uh, 7,200 or 7,600 people. But within a couple of weeks, 6,000 of these Faroe Islanders became sick. And the disease was observed by a Danish uh, medical doctor who didn't get sick because he was a Dane. And that was the crucial thing, namely, this, at the end, there were only about 1,000 people who didn't get sick, and the majority of them were people uh, over 60 or over 65, I don't And they started to remember, said, oh, we remember the same disease when we were kids. So it, it, it what became then clear that in Denmark and all over Europe, measles was known as a, as a, as a disease not the name yet, it was not, and that most children have this during childhood. But this island never had for 60 years this disease. So the carpenter who came there uh, infected the whole island. And this virus was at that time described uh, the incubation period, Every, everything was recognized correctly because there was truly no immunity except for the elderly. And the elderly, they were all protected. And that's what I started to <laughs> remember. We have with COVID a very similar situation. Never a child below 10 years has, been, uh, has died. So we have now the young people who are totally protected and the old ones which are by nature, by immunity, immunocompromised. It's, our immune system is at, at its peak during puberty. And from then on, the immune system goes slowly down. It, uh, it is at puberty the strongest, the best. And that perfectly fits the statistics that we see now with, with COVID-19. And COVID-19, it's the name novel uh, was almost weaponized, I noticed from early on. Uh, it's a scary word. It's novel. It, we have no immunity. It's going to break like an enormous wave over the population. But how novel is it really as a coronavirus? I was astonished. I was, I was also believing that it's novel. That's everybody used to say this, you know. Then you start to think about it. The first, first time I realized, hey, that's not novel, when I realized that the first antibody test was actually an old antibody that had been developed against SARS-1. And this SARS-1 antibody also recognized SARS-2. And then it became clear that uh, I also evaluated a, an antibody test for a, for a venture capital company they wanted to know, is this a good test? It was a cheap test from China. This test was positive in basically everybody. And then, of course, I said, ah, oh. so this test doesn't, is not specific for SARS-CoV-2, but it's specific for other coronaviruses. And it's clear uh, coronaviruses are a cold virus. And every one of us has had probably several infections with this coronavirus during life, and especially young children. Young children always have a runny nose. I mean, 
children below the age of three, they are building up their immunity. And, and I, as a grandfather who my, in my last years was constantly looking after my grandchildren, I was also constantly sick because my immune system has obviously forgotten many of this child disease and many of these mild forms of, of colds from adenoviruses, rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, and so on. So it's, it slowly started to, to clear in my mind, oh, there must be immunity. And then I started to look a little bit in the literature, and I was astonished that there are there were at that time already papers around demonstrating that people who had never contact, never with Corona, uh, with SARS-2, they had a T-cell response against SARS-2. Less than, of course, those who had contact with it, but it was a clear thing. Now, every immunologist knows you cannot have a T-cell response without a B-cell response. The two always go in parallel. It's the T-cells who help the B-cells to make the antibodies. So if you have a T-cell response, you are 100% sure. No, not 100% because there is no 100% in, in nature. So 99.9% .9 sure that you will have also antibodies. And then the longer the more uh, people also showed with commercial assays that there is a kind of a cross-reaction there. And the problem was that most of the assays still until today, they are focused on antibody assays, on being specific and only measuring SARS-CoV-2. And then what they all make the same thing they make antibodies against a spike protein. But for many viruses, the other parts of, of, the, of the virus, other surface proteins, also contribute to immunity and even to protection. That has, that has been described even for influenza. For influenza, it's known that some of the core proteins of the influenza virus also delivers immunity. So you have uh, this influenza also a kind of a ground immunity, which explains why that many doctors, um, they don't like to immunize sometimes, but they don't get the influenza. That's because they're constantly, constantly attacked by influenza viruses and they slowly build up an immunity, of course. So you can have, you can become immune even if you have only mild symptoms of course and that would explain why in many countries basically the virus has passed through its gumperts you know distribution curve of a rapid rise and then a turnover and a long slow fall and basically the mortality falls to almost nothing like most of northern europe but still you can say only five percent antibodies oh there's only seven percent antibodies but that's because the test is too specific it's not testing for the t-cells and myriad other vectors so it's grossly undercounting the real de facto immunity that's now in your population post the wave i think that's true the the first assumption of all these modelers who sold, uh, flattened the curve to the politicians, 
they all believe that the virus is new. Of course, it's kind of a new virus, but most of this, uh, many parts of the virus is not new. It's a relative. It has other coronaviruses that are relatives. So now I was also astonished at the time and I had, uh, yeah, I, ha I had a problem with the flatten the curve, but I went along with it also, I must say to my own shame, because uh, they said else the collateral damage that arises is too big because all the hospitals will be on so on. Everybody knows the story. And I went along with this, but then, just as you said, all over Europe, the curve came down. And independent, independent of whether there was a harsh lockdown or not. It was just whatever a country did, didn't matter. The curves were coming down. So that means that all the model calculators, the epidemiologists with their self-made computer programs, that was basically bullshit because there was a basic immunity there. The virus had not a chance to infect everybody. The virus very often stumbled at, over people who were immune. And that is, until today, the most panic-inducing principle, namely that most media still speak about, today we had so and so many new infections, which is totally, it's not true. A virus, it, it, it's a particle, it goes to everybody. So if somebody is immune, the virus also goes in, into this body and it will multiply even a little bit. But if you're immune, you attack the virus first with antibodies and you make immediately debris, the virus is destroyed, you have only parts of the virus around in, in your tissue, if you make a swap or in your blood, if you go and test your, you will find this, this debris and part of the debris will be nucleic acids, RNA. And if you make a PCR, all these people will be positive because the PCR picks up two tiny, or if it's a good assay, three, sometimes two, sometimes only one tiny little piece of RNA that is then amplified. And this assay cannot tell you whether you had the virus or you just had some dead chunk of the virus, which still gives you a positive result. So, so uh, corona positive with a PCR, everybody should realize this is not a quantitative assay. It's a qualitative assay. It tells you only a little tiny bit of DNA of RNA nucleic acid was there, but it doesn't tell you whether it was a, what the virus complete or even a virulent, uh, meaning a virus that can really make you sick. All this is not in this test. This test only says little piece was there. And that no other virus ever on this planet has been accompanied by so much testing and a testing that has created so much nonsense and panic. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. And I've been stunned since April at this phenomenon. And I might show on the screen in the edit afterwards, a phenomenon from 2009 swine flu, 
where the PCR test was racked up. There was indeed a surge in America of mortality and then it fell off in the classic Gompertz curve uh, for all the reasons you say. But then at the end, when the mortality had fallen and there was an element of hysteria built up, they ramped up testing and there was an enormous increase in positives over the summer season, but the mortality was gone. So you've basically got a measure that can create hysteria with no real meaning because the mortality has gone largely, the impacts are gone, but you're creating hysteria with this measurement, which, as you say, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. So it's, it's a stunning thing to watch unfold in the past month or two. Yes. Mm. And, you know, the, exactly the same thing has happened now in Switzerland. There were, <clears throat> we have now, um, uh, we have to wear masks in public transportation. And that decision was taken two weeks after they have ramped up PCR testing. And the, the ramping up has led to maximally 160 new cases per day, usually on the weekend down to 20, 40. On the weekend, there are no viruses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they respect the weekend break. I, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I, I make a joke here. Of course, yeah. I had myself a routine laboratory that, that was doing testing. Of course, nobody likes to work over the weekend. So all over Europe, you see this seven-day <laughs> fluctuation in, in the presence of the virus, which, which is a pure joke, of course. So, But the point is that, for example, Germany has now for more than five weeks less than 0.6% positive cases. And they test a hell of a lot more. We went up to 15,000 tests per day and found about 150 or so cases. And now uh, it fluctuates. It goes down to 6,000, sometimes only 4,000. But all these effort of, <laughs> of having more tests did not create more deaths, luckily. So nobody is dying, basically, in Switzerland. We have, uh, if you look at the charts that measure the mean uh, dying, it's called in German über or untersterblichkeit. You know, it, it measures the how many people usually die at the same period. We are now lower than the usual uh, death rate in Switzerland. So, and that's true for most European countries now. Absolutely, and Sweden also has gone negative on that measurement, and many countries have gone into the negative. I guess a lot of susceptible people, to your point, older, comorbid, uh, weak immune systems, have sadly passed. So now you've got a lull or, a, or an undershoot in mortality. And interestingly, we won't get into it here, but one of the most compelling factors in a country's overall impact appears from data looking back at prior seasons that there's across 18 countries a nearly perfect correlation. Countries that had soft seasons in the past couple of years tended to get a very high impact. And countries that got impacted in the last few years tended to get a very low one and were credited for their lockdowns. But that one factor alone, the prior clearing of susceptible people, looks to be one of the major factors in a country's performance. So it's quite stunning at the lack of focus on these dynamics 
that dictate a country's impact and the utter single-minded obsession with lockdowns being effective, which, as you've said, and there's around five, six published papers now, professors in Germany, uh, in the UK, the US, Woods Hole Institute, Israel, and more that have done the analysis on the lockdown severity versus the actual curve shape and impact, and there's no correlation. Sorry, guys, but it's it's a pervasive belief system. I, I think it's a bit like Professor Michael Levitt, who I interviewed on this from Stanford, the Nobel laureate. He called it a medieval belief system science has been replaced with now. And he interestingly actually bed uh, he worked out in February, March period from the China data and then from the Italian mathematically what we're saying that it's never exponential as per the modelers because of these cross immune effects. There's a few days of exponential. It goes into a kind of linear and then you get the curl over and then you get the Gumpert's curve going down. It's completely natural. And he pointed out that the Imperial College was 10 to 12 times off. And he wrote to them and they refused to listen to him. And to this day in July 2020, Professor Michael Levitt has been correct, with no exception, on his prediction of a nominal 500 per million deceased, nominally, it will vary, right, and on his curves. But no one will listen. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm being confronted almost daily with, uh, with people who call me up, write me emails and said, you say this, all the others say something different. Who is right? And I said, look, I'm sorry. The subject has become a religious question. And I'm, uh, all my life, I made uh, fun about religions. I'm an atheist. So, you know, this was the <laughs> funniest thing for me to make fun about religious beliefs. And now, the most dangerous thing you can say in Switzerland is that the face mask, a, a hygienic face mask, doesn't protect you. If you say this, that's almost, <laughs> you're almost lynched just because you said this. So <laughs> there is no way we can discuss religious questions with a rational approach. You have no chance anymore. And there were, uh, I was involved in many of these uh, discussions earlier on. For example, genetic manipulation. I was heavily involved in this. And most people, uh, Switzerland has a total ban for the green gene technology. So we have no plants, nothing in this direction. And the reason is because most people believe that nature, so evolution basically does not exist that the world had been created so if you do genetic manipulation you you interfere with god's will you know so people believe in a creation and and that's the basic reason so that generates their fear then against so now we have a fear of a killer virus which is a virus which for some aspects is uh, less harmful than, than the flu. The flu kills young children, it kills pregnant women and so on. 
But whoever is immunocompromised and has a pre-existing disease, the disease can be very harsh and very hard. One should continue to say this, but it's very few people who are actually affected. What's now interesting is that the virus has obviously found new, new kinds of risk persons. In Europe, the, just as you mentioned before, the number of people at risk has been dramatically decreased. I shouldn't laugh about it because it's really sad. They have died for, for several reasons among uh, corona. So there is nobody there to create a second wave. You know, you, you, you just don't have anybody to kill anymore. That's different in the south part of the world now where it's now winter and where the virus goes into populations that starve, they're hungry. Their immune system, the first thing you shut down if, if, if your body is at risk is the last system that came during evolution to, uh, to us as mammals, and that's the immune system. So the immune system is shut down first if you starve. So it's in, in, uh, in, in Brazil, in, in Brazil, there are not the rich people dying there. It's the people in the, <laughs> yeah, in, in the poor people. That makes me sad. And, and, or I just read an article about Argentina, where they, Argentina has the longest lockdown since four months, a total lockdown. If you go on the street, the police comes and gets you. If you don't have a reason, a reason like going to the doctor or, or emergency shopping and whatever. So no other country is at present having such a harsh lockdown. A total uh, mask face wearing principle, everybody has to be. And now go and look at their statistics. You could maybe later on just put it in, just show. The curves are going up, 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 up. And not only the infections, but also the death rate. So whoever says wear a mask, they should look to Argentina. They, they wear masks like nobody wears them. There's no effect. So I feel sorry for countries like the States, where you have another principle. It seems that the virus can also use not only the ACE receptor, but also CD146. So it's, it's, it's another... Uh, receptor that the virus can bind to. Because I never understood why should, why should be, uh, people with, <coughs> with diabetes be uh, at risk, you know? They are not really immunocompromised. And, and obese people are not necessarily immunocompromised. But what's now uh, becoming clear is they overexpress CD146. So they become uh, vulnerable because they express this second receptor. So they give the, the virus a greater chance to infect. And they have a bigger struggle to fight it. So but that now uh, explains lots of the cases in America where, where sad enough, uh, those people who, who suffer from racism are also often, namely, black people who, who have more uh, diabetes than, than the whites and so on. So no wonder that these people are more affected than, uh, 
than whites right now. So it's complex, but the virus basically shows how good is your medical system in your country. And the world has now seen how bad the medical, the medical system in America is. Yeah, for sure. And of course, the population health, as you referred to there, is an enormous factor as well. And I, diabetic or type 2 diabetic, I've been working in that field for some time. And, you know, they will have all kinds of other susceptibilities, yeah, but not directly immunocompromised, as you say. It's, uh, there's also one thing I'd like to add in here, but not get too deep into it, uh, your point to Argentina. So there is a seasonal effect uh, beyond the malnutrition in certain countries, certain areas of the world, which is going to be a huge susceptibility. But there does appear to be a very strong seasonal uh, surge element to this as well. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book from Hope Simpson, The British Doctor. Well, briefly, um, I've done some little lectures on this. I got his book, and in 1933, Hope Simpson set up the first influenza transmission laboratory in the UK. And he went on to spend over 50 years on this question of transmission. Fascinating insights. But he had curves to the world, and he showed how the northern temperate had a certain kind of sharp curve up and fall off for influenza. And then the southern temperate was similar, but six months offset. And then the northern and southern tropicals, like Argentina, Brazil, Peru, all these places, they had kind of a longer, slower hump, right, across the seasons. Now, he never fully answered it, but interestingly, coronavirus is behaving pretty much exactly like his curves. So one fascinating thing, and I just like your thoughts on it, I made the point recently that Brazil coronavirus COVID-2 was verified in the sewage, human sewage, in November 19, similar to Europe. But in Europe, we all got the curves all over northern temperate and U.S. similar, right? But in Brazil, we got an April-May slow rise to a long hump of mortality. But they all had the virus back in November, proven. So there's a seasonal resurgence or, or rise. I, I can tell you a similar fun story about Switzerland, namely the, the doctor responsible for the Swiss Olympic team at the time when the Olympics were in Australia. He forced every competitor to be vaccinated with the influenza. And he said, because for us, influenza is gone. But when we go down to Australia, there's influenza season down there during the <laughs> Olympics. And you could look it up. So it was one of the Olympics where Switzerland made significantly more gold medals than in other Olympics because there are so many other Olympionics who were sitting on the toilet and so on instead of competing. And the Swiss had the chance to win medals, you know. So, so it was the vaccination against... Uh, that helped the, the, the Swiss in, in getting. So it's a, it's a funny story that I used to tell also my, my students that they realized that, that these cold viruses, they migrate around the world. And that's why they come, we always have a season. They're always 
rhinoviruses, adenovirus, influenza virus, coronavirus, they're all together. And for years, I, we have an influenza sentinel in Switzerland, you know. I was always mad that they called this influenza sentinel because it always looked like those are influenza patients. But a doctor cannot discriminate between a heavy adeno, rhino, corona, or influenza, if it just looks at the patient, it can be so similar. So it was always these so-called flu disease were always a mixture of different viruses. And actually, if you look into science, <laughs> there's probably more than 200 viruses that, that create flu-like symptoms. So, so, so also, and that's also something, you know, we have now tested for corona like hell, but many of these patients probably had at the same time some other viruses. They, they all come together and, and, and it could have worsened the disease. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a good or very interesting point because around six weeks ago, I pulled a paper. I probably have a couple of hundred papers on this now on disk. Uh, but it was either MIT or Harvard did that analysis and raised that, that question. And they found, I think, 26, 27% of people with corona who were cases also had influenza virus present. So they're just making the point, you know, we only check for influenza, it's there. So what actually caused the problem in these cases? You know, the influenza problem fell off the map when we started hyper-testing for corona, hyper-focus. You know, we got a million watt arc light on corona. And whenever, like in my world engineering, we say if you don't measure it, it don't get fixed. But there's a kind of a corollary to that too. If you hyper-measure the, the wrong thing and over-focus, you end up with a crisis that's not really what it seems to be. So there's so many problems in this. You know, I, I don't know which to go to next, but I will go back to, I think, the herd immunity and the second wave. Because in Ireland in the last few weeks, uh, I have seen what frankly shocks me. On national television, professor level people in immunology and other uh, disciplines on the television saying two things which are connected. Herd immunity, forget it. We've only got a few percent immune in Ireland now. We're fully exposed as bad as we were back in March before we went through the whole Gompertz curve. They actually said that. And they also are all terrorizing now about a second wave. So let's talk about this second wave potential. And I've begun to use a phrase which is a little cocky. And I said, no second wave without a second virus. I'm trying to get that concept out there. So how can you have a second wave in a population? We know the lockdown did next to nothing. We know Ireland has 360 per million dead. Sweden's around 540, UK is 600. We've all gone through the Gompertz curve. And just like you described, the susceptible have been sadly taken out and everyone left is broadly de facto community immunity. How could we have possibly a second wave before a natural seasonal resurgence, which is a normal phenomenon? How could we have a second wave? Yeah, you make a good point. So first of all, there seems to be a new strain of virus, and especially in America, which is more contagious, but less harmful. 
And nobody, and, and that's amazing because if you can do hundreds of thousands of PCRs, you should be able to do out from time to time a sequence, sequencing. So you don't hear about sequences in the public. So that, that's the, you know, more journalists and people from the media should ask, what is the sequence of the virus that is spreading right now in our community? So in other words, we must find out whether the virus has already mutated. That's what viruses do best, you know. And normally a virus gets weaker and weaker. He doesn't want to kill the people. He, he wants to spread. And obviously this new form in America is, uh, you can look at, the, uh, even in America, the, the, the number of deaths is going down. At the same time, the infections are rising uh, dramatically. So, and of course, they still have both different types of viruses. So that's your argument, the new virus. The second one is, of course, we will have a second wave because it's a cold virus of coronaviruses every year they come back and they were every year here so in in winter when it comes back yeah of course they can call it a second wave but it's only a second wave in terms of a pandemic if it creates lots of problems and it will not create problems if we just accept it as a cold virus and not as a pandemic danger. And a second wave has happened only once to my knowledge. And that was during the Spanish flu. So it's, it's amazing that everybody style, uh, makes the exception to the rule all of a sudden. You know? if, if there would be second waves, then we would have had it with, with all other influenza viruses, of course. We have every year a second wave, but all these are, are wave number 10,015 because they were always around, you know. So uh, that's, and the other thing we talked about, uh, a sad thing is uh, there is not enough risk patients for a second wave. They have died already. And that was at the beginning also the reason why it didn't go to the north or the south side of the planet. Because those are, to a large degree, younger populations than we are. Italy or Spain, they have an incredible amount of, uh, and a culture for all elderly people, which is wonderful, you know. But they don't look after them in certain hospitals <laughs> rightly, you know. And, and by the way, this has to be stated again and again. Italy did not have a problem. It was certain regions and especially certain hospitals that every year had a problem with the flu already. So some of my Italian friends get very nervous because they work in hospitals that are perf doing perfectly well. They never had a bigger problem and they treated patients. So if we pinpoint that Italy and, and Spain we should pinpoint with the finger to certain regions within there. The same thing you can also say with Sweden, and that's now a different story. Sweden minimally admitted that the major strategy that every country should have had, namely protect the vulnerable people, that they made a mistake. And to my total astonishment, they apologized for it. 
Can you imagine one of our politicians apologizing for some things that they did? I've never seen this. And Sweden did this. So, so my appreciation for such a country, when they, because they had more than about half the death they had. They had localized to certain asylums for the elderly. So if you subtract these deaths for which they have apologized, and it was mainly in Stockholm, in the region of Stockholm. If you subtract this, the death rate is exactly the same as Switzerland, for example, without, uh, without the lockdown, without all this. And, and the government, who knows too, that it's part of the population, <laughs> the people, and apologizes. Here, wherever, in all the other European countries, the governments have almost played a, <laughs> a role like in, uh, as if they as if we would have royal societies you know where where you can do whatever you want and that's uh, it's not my business but it's it's also something that we have to worry and these collateral damages they will only appear from now on slowly most of them are even not seen yet yeah, I'd agree, but uh, and, and on that point, the political point, there is a kind of a sinister element at this stage uh, to the outrageous infringements, the collateral damage, all the cancer diagnoses that will be missed, uh, a huge wave of problems for the future. And we know now from the mathematics and the publications, the lockdown did next to nothing. But Sweden, just to pick up on that, I've looked very closely at the Swedish data and Roughly speaking, 50% are in those large care homes, mainly Stockholm. That's where they were hit. Another 20% are aged uh, with at-home care. So they're 70 plus percent of the aged. And then they also have Somali ethnics disproportionately hit. But there you'd have profound low vitamin D with the very dark skin and the far northern climes. And when you go on, there's so much data. But just one other thing I'll mention on Italy so Italy, Northern Italy, is the vitamin D black spot of Europe. Now, vitamin D isn't just like, you know, supplements. Vitamin D is an incredible marker of metabolic health. And just to give a comparison with Japan, uh, studies in Northern Italy have shown, I think, 84% of aged with vitamin D levels below 12 nanogram per mil. Now, that's profound problem physiology versus one study in Japan for uh, active aged showed 95% of women over 30 nanogram per mil, which is healthy. So are, there are these massive differences in inherent metabolic health that are not being acknowledged, that are dictating some of the impacts. But the second wave, just to come back to it, so the, the 1918 Hope Simpson, who I mentioned, cover that in great detail. And that himself and many other papers suggest that the second wave in the summer, which was out of season and unusual, was that it was a different virus, either a virus from the late 1800s, and that's why in the second wave older people were not so affected, in contrast to the first, or it was a major mutation of the flu influenza from the first wave that came back from Europe, you know, with army people, and it was a major mutation. Now, they don't know for sure but there's a general consensus it was not a true second wave from the same virus from the first one. Um, but again, I don't know if you, you know much about that question or... Well, I, I, I just said 
I'm disappointed that uh, at the be beginning you could easily find the sequences of different viruses and since sometimes this thing has disappeared, you know. Uh, one reason is that many media have uh, given up the science uh, journalists in their houses, you know, they have they have cut them out. So it's just sport, sex, and crime that's, that's important, and science. So most journalists cannot read a scientific journal. And then they, they, they copy each other when they hear something, and then they, that becomes uh, cooperated in forever. So that's one really sad problem. But one problem that makes me even more sad is that you don't hear what the true treatments were of patients during different times. How were patients really treated in China? How were they treated in certain Italian hospitals, in Spanish hospitals, and so on? And uh, the interesting thing is that all of a sudden, in America, you heard, now we have a drug, dexamethasone, that can be used to treat the heavy cases. You know, I suspect they found out because uh, cortisone treatments were probably like dexamethasone were probably initiated much earlier on. And if you give the patient the cortisone early on, you exactly destroy you 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 inhibit his T cell response the patient becomes exclusively dependent on the antibody response, whether he, has, whether he has a natural immunity or not. So now, with, together with this treatment, you can just put the patient on a speedway to death, you know, because, but of course, if you give it in late, when, when it's the last chance, then dexamethasone or similar products, then you have, to hinder, you have to impede inflammation, and that's where they. So, I'm not suggesting anything, but I'm saying is, I'm not sure whether every country had the same regimens for the treatment. I'm not sure whether the doctors of every country communicated so well and have adapted their treatments. Of course, we have now also the chance of a second wave is also smaller because now most doctors know how to treat. And that makes much less cases, you know. And what speaks for that is in Switzerland right now, the people who make the greatest kind of panic still are all of a sudden the medical doctors. It started at, uh, some time ago when they said, oh, be careful. This disease can make Kawasaki syndrome. And it was a, it was a paper where I think six children, three had corona, three not. That was enough to say that. So, so that, that, and I got mails from doctors. Did you hear this? Be careful what you say. We children, because I always said, Children below 10 never die, never get sick. Then I got these mails, ah, did you hear about the Kawasaki syndrome of small children? 
bullshit. You know, that, that's over. But now we hear about long-term consequences, <laughs> long-term disease. And the funny thing about this, it's the type of disease that normally anti-vaxxers say that vaccines are, <laughs> are doing it. So all of a sudden, medical doctors use these strange, like the fatigue syndrome or whatever, you know, diseases that are, <laughs> that are never were a disease and never are one, but are nice names, you know. All of a sudden, all these diseases come up as long-term damages. Or then they say, oh, even a month after the lung still has some problems. Yeah, of course, if you destroyed part of the lung, it doesn't grow back in two days, you know. So, 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 so many say, and, and by the way, you have the same problem if you had the flu, but nobody looked at them because it was the flu. If you had the flu, you know, the flu goes seven days without treatment and one week with treatment, you know, so, <laughs> so that was the, the approach that everybody had. And then forget about it. So whatever later on may, may be due to the flu, nobody was interested in it. Yeah, again, it's, it's similar to the testing problems that we already covered. When you hyper-focus for whatever reason, I guess hysteria is, is certainly a part of the driver, but when you hyper-focus, you do see things, they are real, but you've got to put them in context, you know, like you say, in context with, I know people who had bad flus in previous years, and they said it six weeks afterwards, I was still exhausted, you know, but, but like you say, no one cares if it's a flu, but if it's got the C word, now it's big news, big fear. The, the thing about it is the journalists, you make a good point that they have lost their science departments. And to be honest, I'm quite frankly shocked at the journalism around the world in the past two months, because even basic logic has been abandoned in many of these questions. Hey guys, just a brief break to remind you that it takes a huge amount of time and effort to bring you this leading edge science, and I need to be supported to continue to do so. So here's my Patreon link, and hopefully you can go there and choose an option that fits your circumstances. And remember that this is all about bringing the correct science of health and nutrition to the people and countering the corporate biased and often conflicted interpretations that fill most of our media. Thank you. But again, to go back to the doctors you mentioned who are kind of scaremongering and professors, like how have they abandoned their faculties? Uh, you called some of your colleagues immunity deniers, kind of jokingly, but making the point that actual immunology people are speaking incorrectly on these fundamentals we're talking about. You know, why, why is that? And why is it so widespread? Is there a fear amongst the community that we've all got to say the same thing, that we can't speak out like you are? I think you're making a valid point, and I, I draw it. I draw the conclusion from mails and telephones I got from young immunologists. I, I had written some articles for Swiss uh, newspapers and uh, about immunity, cross reaction, and all this. And then they called me up and said, "Thank you very much for saying this. We say this amongst our friends, but already there we are shut down." And we do not dare to say it in public. We still have a career in front of us. And I said, gee, that's almost... And then I remembered 
I was in the same situation in former times differently because for our research, we needed a lot of money. And where did we get it? From industry. So whenever we published something, uh, you know, somebody came up and said, oh, you, you are not to be taken serious because you are supported by the industry. So although it was a bad thing. And then the journal started to, to address this. You had to show your, your conflicts and say from where the money came and so on. And then industry started to make much more of their own research. And research which was so expensive that the academics even couldn't afford it. So much of the research went to the industry labs. And the academic, they needed government money. And typically, like epidemiologists, nobody was listening to these guys. I mean, the epidemiology, what strange subject is this? At peaceful times, you know, they could talk about the uh, Spanish flu and so on and scare, but, but it was a joke, you know. And they clearly depended on government money. And all of a sudden, all these epidemiologists in Switzerland, we, I didn't even know that we had so many of them, you know. They become supported by the government. They were elected into special task forces. They were stuffed out with money. So this is a problem. If, if, if research money is, is difficult to get for everybody, and if you don't get it from the industry, you have to go to the government. And if you talk against the government, the danger is great that the next grant is being cut, you know. So in Switzerland, even the guy who is the, the chief of the task force is at the same time the president of the biggest <laughs> supporting <laughs> institution of the Swiss National Science Foundation. So. That is ridiculous, you know. So, so the guys who support themselves are in every institution where uh, I'm not saying it's mafiosi style, but it looks like, you know. <laughs> it it's an endemic um, groupthink reinforced by by the the forces you're talking about. It's not actively evil. It just turns out to have an evil effect, I guess. And when you mention the epidemiologists there, yeah, they're in dusty corridors and offices and academia, no one cares. But now suddenly in March 2020, they're heroes. And probably the worst of them jump into the public light and get on the television and, you know, get a huge amount of attention. But we have a phrase in Ireland like handing barbed wire to a baby. And I think that's what happened. We, we handed... We handed a loaded Colt 45 like to a baby when we handed those guys the predictions and the models. As Professor Levitt said, if they're 100 times too high in their prediction, that's perfectly fine for them. If they're 30% too low, that's a disaster. So you got this ultra-biased group who are now thrust into the limelight and they kind of lost the plot, I think. So massive groupthink. And then in, in academia... You know, even in immunology and in virology, I noticed in March, uh, much to my concern, that some very articulate, very reputable virologists and epidemiologists like uh, Knut Witkowski and Dr. Wolfgang uh, Woderg in Germany and several more, they were basically taken off YouTube. 
And they weren't saying anything crazy like anti-vax. They weren't saying any crazy 5G stuff. They weren't saying anything racist. They were simply laying out how the problem was and how it would progress. And it wasn't an absolute disaster. And therefore, they had to be banned. Isn't that extraordinary, like, that phenomenon in 2020? It turns out that they were all correct, by the way. So the reality is in Europe now, the reality is, I did, and Professor Levitt and many more did, 2018 respiratory season, there were 140,000 excess deaths in the hump in 2018 across the Euromomo countries. That's all cause mortality. Right now, this season, it's backloaded because there was a big spike in March, April, because we had a lot of susceptible through a very soft 1920 flu season, no excess. But right now we're at around 175,000 deaths. Now we know lockdown didn't really impact much, so it's not massively different than 18. It's just concentrated into a tight spot in March, April, which obviously makes a big dramatic appearance. But, but these specialists were all essentially correct in everything they were saying. You know, this is a massive problem, right? Uh, but to be fair, I, and to my own astonishment, in Switzerland, when I brought up this principle that, and said, Look, listen, uh, our he herd immunity is uh, to a certain degree already there because there is this cross-reaction. We have a basic immunity. Almost everybody has this. And when I explained this, until today, I have not heard from a single immunologist within Switzerland that I was wrong and that they, this is not true. I, I, must, I must say this. So uh, nobody has, and, and if I say other things, usually they like to attack me, you know. So, so, it's not, so it, it, it is so logic, it is so obvious that they do not uh, uh, dare to attack me. And that's why I think it's important that one, uh, that it has nothing to do with the persons, but that one takes this new literature together and that politicians get this served and say, look, I know you hate the principle of herd immunity because the epidemiologists, they all said, this is from the devil, you cannot do it, it's dangerous, look at Sweden and so on. But now look at the new data. Most of the people are actually immune already. So we do not have to protect the people. We have to protect the vulnerable people. I mean, that's the strategy. Nobody had this strategy all over the world. And it's the most obvious strategy to follow. Just become creative. How can we get these elderly who with a predisposition at a safe place? How can they still continue a normal good life without being imprisoned? Because that's what nowadays everybody does with these risk patients. They imprison them. They lock them up. That's also be creative. So when every country would come up with some ideas, you know, that then we would benefit. Then we don't have to criticize the system anymore. Then they could excuse themselves and say, sorry, we made a big mess, but from now on we have a new strategy. But most country after the curves did not flatten. They, from that moment on, that was their only strategy they had. From their moment on, every politician just went for a 
look and see strategy. And that's no strategy. Let's look and see what happens. And that, that is very sad. And that's why some politicians must now look at the disaster because they said, look and see, especially in America or so. Others can be very, can now claim that it was the lockdown, but in Switzerland, there are solid data, like in many other countries, that's the, the, the logarithmic, there was no increase before the lockdown, there was already a decrease. That's a fact. So apologize for this and choose now a reasonable strategy. That's what I would hope for. And I would hope for too, but sadly, rather than protect the elderly with a focus on next winter more so than right now in this season, in Ireland, a prison sentence and a two and a half thousand euro fine has come in uh, and to wear masks on public transport. And it's going as well to all stores and shops. So we've passed the curve. Our mortality is on the floor for around six weeks now. We know there's de facto immunity because that's the only way you go to the floor in these things. And we're now introducing under pain of prison masks to a population that's broadly immune and as the problem has passed until maybe next winter, in which case we should be focusing on protecting the vulnerable, exactly as you say. So it's a twilight zone scenario. I mean, it truly is. Um, you know, I'm almost speechless, which is unusual for me. And that's all across Europe. I mean, the masks, just another point, and I'll pop the graphs up. I don't want to be anti-mask because I'm a purist scientifically and empirically, and therefore I have to say it. I have to get it out that it does not make scientific sense. But I don't want to be anti-mask because it is a relatively easy intervention. And there's a concept that it could save people. So it looks very churlish to, to push against it. But the reality is we have the R curves for five, six countries now where mandatory masks came in at different dates. And for every country, when you put the date of mandatory mask, whether it's Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, we have Scotland now, uh, Germany, um, there's a couple more. The mask mandatory came in at all different dates. The curve never changed at all, the R curve, nothing. And, and that makes sense because 40 years of science have been unanimous pretty much that for influenza viruses, you know, surgical masks and coverings are just very ineffective. So it agrees with the science. It doesn't agree with the science of June 2020. I saw a flurry of papers came out saying masks could be good. And they were overwhelmingly associational and modeling papers. So a few weeks of papers have overturned a few decades of accepted scientific sense. What do you think of this mask thing? Yeah, I, I think the same way. Um... I made some enemies by saying that in the region where I am, there is since five weeks, not a single case. And of course, nobody died. And I said, maybe it's better you wear a helmet than a mask because the chance that somebody drops on your head is greater than, than you pick it, <laughs> the virus up. So, but the, the biggest problem is if you ask somebody, how long are we supposed to wear the masks? Then they say until there is a vaccine. Sometimes, most of the time, they don't know. 
So then, then I say, I am very much pro-vaccine. I will, of course, have myself vaccinated. I, I have no problem with that. But I'm an immunologist. And I know when I immunized mice, they were young mice. And there was basically 100% of the mice were protected, for example, if we did something. I would never take elderly mice to immunize them. And the point is that since many years, I have attacked our uh, health uh, responsible uh, at the government by saying, you always say that people at risk should become vaccinated against influenza. This is stupid because those are exactly the people that are immunocompromised, who most of them cannot raise a good immune response against the vaccine. So vaccine, vaccination, the principle of vaccination is the principle of solidarity. So the young people would have to immunize themselves so that the elderly are protected. And this is exactly the same thing now with COVID-19. COVID-19, you can even if you make a wonderful vaccine, most likely these old people at risk, their immune system is down. They will not mount a good immune response. So they will not be protected. All the ones that are now not at risk, they will be even better protected. That's clear. It will work in them. But So one should think about this and, uh, and say, yeah, so that means we should wear the mask from now on every influenza season, every, every winter, every winter, just masks. Is this becoming like a new piece of underwear that everybody has to wear constantly? So it just doesn't make sense. And I'm very much for masks for people who are sick. They, if they have, in case of emergency, they have to go out in a public, they should wear a mask. And of course, I myself was wearing a mask in the lab if I did some you know, dangerous things with viruses and so on. But I was not wearing hygienic masks. And I was not wearing a piece of, um, a piece of underwear over my face. You know, that's, that's not a mask. So, all the professionals that wear hygienic masks, they do it to protect us. They, if they operate, they don't want their beard, hair, or, or uh, chips from the skin or bacteria drop down in an open wound. That's why they wear, they wear a mask, but not to protect against viruses. If you buy an official package, it's written on it, does not protect against viruses, you know. <laughs> but people buy it and believe they're protected. So I have my doubts and I think it's, it's just a political thing that if you you're, imagine you are Tony Fauci in America, you have Trump this idiot on the one side <laughs> and now you should, you should say what the country should do. Say, wear a mask, keep distance, don't go in a bar. Yeah, we should talk about bars, maybe. Maybe bars have air conditions, old air conditioners who are real viral spreaders because America has such a big 
maybe America has such a big problem because you can put the mask on Americans but not take the air condition away. But if you take it at South States now where it starts, I lived there. You ran from air condition to air condition if you wanted to survive. But these cheap air conditions that hang somewhere in the window are not really taken care. These air conditions are not only spreading viruses, they're also spreading bacteria and whatever. So we should think about such phenomena that may interfere with our health as well. And I certainly uh, agree, Beda. And I know U.S. is problematic. And again, just to the earlier point about seasonality, you know, the very lower part of America now is seeing the Brazil-like or Mexico-like long, slow surge, which actually, again, is concordant with Hope Simpson. And the northern has basically gone through a northern European-like Gompkert's curve and has faded away and you've got the immunity. So... But if we just return, you made some really key points there, and I know we have to wind to a close shortly, but just to pick up on some of those mask ones, because so many people ask about it. So for a country like Ireland or most Northern Europe, European countries who have gone up to the approximately 500 per million deceased, and as we've agreed, largely have community immunity, um, for those countries right now to wear masks, that question of when you stop wearing them, because if you've been through the epidemic and precluding a major mutation or a seasonal resurgence, that's a separate question. Right now in July, we've been through it, largely community immunity, and we use masks. When would you stop using them if you start using them at a point where they kind of make no more sense? There is no end point to that. And the vaccine point, you know, if you have a population that's now largely achieved community immunity with, with pockets who may not have and with susceptible people who've been cocooning who are still exposed, but if your population broadly has passed this thing, you know, what will a vaccine do for that population if they've already got T-cell, mucosal, various activations are largely shielded for the next 12 months? What's a vaccine really do for that population? Does it add to their immunity? Let's look first at the masks. And one problem there is many people agree basically with me when I say the masks are for the, the sick and so on. Then they say, but look, I have to go to work. Then I go in a, in a bus or in a train and it's stuffed with people. That's where I agree to put the mask on. And that's the logic. And then I say, okay, okay, I understand, but that's a belief. Exact, the mask is only, makes only sense if you have already social distancing. Now, to, that the mask can replace social distancing, that's a wrong assumption. And that makes the mask dangerous because people say, okay, now, I'm in a crowded situation. What shall I do? I put the mask on, then I'm safe. That's not true. Under these conditions, they are not safe. So we sh that's why I say the mask is for those who are sick. Then if somebody stands in a corner with a, with a mask, then you don't go too close to him. It's not, it's not a sign of the pest. It, it's something that goes by 
And this is a, a very wonderful person that if he wears a mask, showing everybody else, look, maybe I'm dangerous. Hmm? It's like carrying a weapon open or not <laughs> closed, you know. So that's this. And then, about else, now this, the question is over because this is now a religious question. Wearing mask is like wearing a cross around your neck, you know. It, it, and the sad thing is also all those people who want the mask, they know that this is a way how they can put pressure and force onto other people. And they like that, you know, that they can suppress other people. All of a sudden, the Mr. Nobody in public has the right to shout at somebody because he has no, it's not, he becomes a policeman. You know, he, he gets all the right to, to attack other people. It's this Facebook mentality that Facebook is so bad because people lose their temper and they start attacking each other and you have all these trolls and so on. You know, a thing that's made for friends has become a major platform for, for every asshole that wants to attack somebody else, you know. And the mask is something similar. It gives people a right to bitch around. And, and become petty tyrants of sort. And, you know, there's parallels in the mid-20th century in Europe, these things we're talking about that are quite concerning, these kind of behaviors, where they spring up and under what circumstances these kind of things are encouraged or allowed. So I think quite philosophically about this beyond the scientific efficacy of the mask. And I think, yeah, we're doing some, some quite dangerous things at the moment uh, beyond the efficacy. And, and on the vaccination question then, again, I myself, I have five children, got all the vaccines. A couple of years ago, I even got vaccines going to China. I was on business in Shenzhen. I got whacked with a few things, didn't even ask what they were. They might have been yellow fever or something. So I don't care about vaccines and I don't care about any of this talk of negative effects. The body can handle any negative, I reckon. But the point has to be said, if you have a population that's largely achieved community immunity, uh, the benefits in doing a huge vaccination program in a population like that, does the vaccine maybe just add a little more immunity? additive to the t-cell additive to the people who are full antibody immune you're just making a little bit more immune to protect the susceptible or i'm not sure if if the problem has gone for this season are you vaccinating just for the next winter resurgence rather than protect the uh, aged and comorbid you're just trying to protect them by by getting everyone more immune is, is that yeah uh Based on the facts, it, it looks like this, but I am interested to see whether vaccination works in the risk, in the vulnerable patients. Mm -hmm. If one of these vaccines is so strong that we can protect them, that means we should finally go back and do also maybe vaccines against rhinoviruses. There are vaccines against adenoviruses which have been used by the American army. They have they had one, but it, when, it never went to the public, you know. 
So that is also, you know, you can make a lot of money with, with all these uh, painkillers, vitamin C and so on, <laughs> against all these uh, uh, colds, you know. In my view, if we could re-immunize, if we could bring the immune memory back in the elderly with a good vaccine, that would be a nice protection. But then, uh, but then truly, that's only a vaccine for the elderly. I had just recently such a vaccine that's against herpes zoster. So herpes is now uh, people over 50 are suggested to be immunized. Be, because, you know, it's the varicella. You have this as a child. It's a child disease, not very problematic. But then it can re-erupt, the virus sleeps in your, uh, in your uh, nerve cells and can re-erupt and make uh, a herpes zoster. It's, uh, I don't know the, the English term, it's gürtelrose. It's very painful, you know, it erupts at the skin. And uh, many people, because they're elderly, their immune system deteriorates and then all of a sudden the virus has a chance to, to jump up again. It's a similar virus like the one that makes uh, herpes labialis, you know, the, on the lips and so on. So this, I had this vaccine because many people my age, all of a sudden, they get this herpes and it's, you suffer for a month or two. And, and I can tell you, it's really painful. So, so I had this vaccine and it's typical, that's now a vaccine for the elderly. Nobody, nobody, you know, no child should be immunized with this. It's a vaccine for the elderly. So, and, and, and if COVID, uh, if a vaccine against COVID becomes this, if it really works in the elderly, that would be wonderful, you know, when discussion is over and then we don't need so many doses of vaccine. And, and the, the, that's a generation of people who really still likes vaccination. We, there's almost no anti-vaxxers in, in this population. They, they would go immediately to the doctor and, and we, the problem would be solved, you know. And my, yeah, my mother's now nearly 80 and absolutely, as you say, and all of her generation, they're concerned about influenza. It's a risk for them. So there's no resistance. Very happy with it. And I think there was a flu vaccine brought out by one company, which was four times dose to try and achieve what, what you're referring to. And it, it was commercially available and used. And I think they showed 20% more effectiveness in a trial. So that would be the holy grail then an effective vaccine that really is for the people who are at risk, at most risk. That would be the holy grail. Yeah. Mm. So very good. Well, I'm conscious how much of your time I've taken. I'm wondering what to close with. A recap is sometimes good. Um, so herd immunity threshold, if I could paraphrase, it's probably de facto in the region of 10 or 20% as per yet another paper came out yesterday with the 10 to 20% amount. And we've heard it from Dr. Wolfgang Woderg and so many more because like if you've got an infected person traced and there's many studies, generally a symptomatic infected, definite infected person, they've done tracking studies through their actual households and people they've shared houses with, with no mask. And they generally see 70 or 80% of people 
fully expose the person don't get it so to your point even just with basic logic there's a large swathe of the population with t-cell cross immunity or whatever that just don't ever experience it really so herd immunity is probably around 10 or 20 percent more than the 70 percent and 80 percent that they talked about before is that a kind of a rough rule of thumb you don't have to guess you just look at the statistics of who is dying the people who died didn't have immunity the people who survived had immunity so if you if you have an incubation time of 20.2 days like suggested by some that means somebody has fought with the virus for 20 days with its immune system and then the immune system was used up and he was became a little bit sick so just the death and then the next population if you take the ones that go to the hospital if you take these together the rest is immune the rest had a small cold like every year and suffered a little bit if your immunity is perfect you don't feel anything you're asymptomatic you know <laughs> the, the asymptomatic means means you're not sick you know and and all the rest which have strong symptoms so that they have to go to the hospital that's the people who didn't have enough immunity so you just take this percentage turn it around then you come to minimally 80 percent who are probably if you take all these papers on t-cell those papers are artificial they take a small number of peptides and then they look at t-cell response against them the true experiment would be you you take the purified virus but mix it make it uh, <laughs> destroy it and show it to the t-cell then you will have a much stronger t-cell response then then probably a hundred percent of the people would probably react you know and then you take uh, the other now finally people should make just anti-corona cold virus antibodies and look how many of these antibodies recognize SARS-2 and the normal cold antibodies and that's another percentage that shows you how immune we are so we can probably go to 70 80 percent of the people are most likely immune yeah which tallies with all of the figures and also the analyses that look independent of the lockdown which we know mathematically did very little all of the analyses looking at what actually happened in all the countries also spit out the same numbers so from every different angle you approach it a country that's gone through the gumpert's curve essentially has de facto herd immunity like ireland england sweden we're effectively there and yet as the final thing i'll say why do we not believe we're there and that's because of immunity deniers, <laughs> including, including professors of immunology on primetime television to this day, claiming that the populations that pass through this have very little immunity. We're all still exposed, like back in March when we started. We're actually at as much risk. So I think that's the most stunning 
anti-scientific thing I've seen in my lifetime. And that'll be saying a lot. It's quite incredible to me. So final thoughts, Peter, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thanks. Have fun. And I feel pity for Ireland because in Switzerland, it's over. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens in Ireland. Perhaps if scientific sense doesn't return, perhaps some common sense could make a resurgence in the summer. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Stadler. Uh, it's been great talking with you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Here's my Patreon link, and hopefully you can go there and choose an option that fits your circumstances. And remember that this is all about bringing the correct science of health and nutrition to the people and countering the corporate biased and often conflicted interpretations that fill most of our media. Thank you.